Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Brazil. This is a show where we get to talk about sports, we get to talk about business, and we get to talk about everything in between. Wherever you're listening, however you're listening, you know exactly what to do. Like and subscribe on YouTube, five-star review on Apple, and maybe say some nice words, and then an easy, easy five-star review over on Spotify. But of course, the most important piece of this is my incredible guest today. I have Chris Kaysen. He's a journalist and an athlete marketing specialist. Chris? How you doing today, man? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure is all mine. I'm excited. Man. I, I, I say it constantly on the show, and it's how I reached out to you. If I could do this for the rest of my life, I'd be the happiest person on earth. If I could just interview people, interview athletes on the cool shit that they're doing in sports and get paid for it, I'd be the happiest person on planet earth. Now, I'm sure it's not as easy as it sounds, right? I'm sure you're going to lay into us a little bit. Really give us what the behind <laughs> the scenes is. But on the on the forefront, man, it sounds sweet, right? Let me be Joe Rogan. I'll do three hour long podcasts. It's my favorite thing. Like that's easy. Like we'll see what we could do there. I'm not going to keep you for three hours, Chris. Don't you worry. Probably about thirty <laughs> to forty five. But uh, excited for the conversation. So, Chris, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Um, I think it's one of the really. There's a few things in life that brings all types of, you know, cultures. Um, and backgrounds together and sports is one of that you know there I grew up as a Chicago Bulls fan and literally you can go to Spain and you know Barcelona just with the globalization of the game there are Bulls fans all over the globe and it's the one thing that you know I think in society there's so many things in societies that are meant to separate us and I think sports is one of those unifying factors no matter what creed or background or whatever your religious beliefs are you know if you're a pittsburgh steelers fan you're a pittsburgh steelers fan you can have a beer with you know that guy who you probably wouldn't speak to on the street you can have a beer alongside that guy during the game so and just the amount of storytelling um that just with the rich history of these organizations, with the players that have played for them, just even people's path and getting to work for those organizations. Um, it's just all things that I love. Everybody has a unique story, but sports is just one of those things that, you know, brings all these different walks of life together. Absolutely, man. I uh, It's definitely something that I say on this show a lot. If, if there's someone, if I'm anywhere in the world and I see someone in a Mets hat, I'm going to go say something to him. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what language they speak, right? But I'm going 100%. Point to his hat, point to my shirt, give him a fist pump, whatever it is. Like, I, I 100% will do that. And there's there's just something inherent about that, yeah, unifying factor, that community, that that just baked in, built in community, right? Like, when I grew up, that's all my friends were the people that I played sports yep. with, right? Like, you, you kind of gravitate towards the conversations. Uh, oh, how'd the Giants do today? Actually, they won. That was pretty cool, right? So there's, it's yeah. so easy to have those conversations. And I love the fact that you bring up the storytelling too, right? The storytelling. I'm sure every Bulls fan that you've ever met, right, they all are going to have a, just a slightly different version of the story of what Michael Jordan did that one time, right? Yep. But there's something so so pure and beautiful about that because we all we all hold that specific memory in that moment so near and dear to us. And yet, none of us are really right about it. We all, at the end, we can look at the box score, but that the way that moment felt, the way that made it made us feel, there, there's nothing like it. Absolutely, and that's the most important things, like how sports makes us feel. I mean, you can. There are people who are lifers. You know, a bad Bears game could ruin a guy's Sunday and Monday. You know, until that next game, but he's still going to watch. You could, like, how long did it take? You know, Cubs fans. Think a hundred years before they celebrated another World Series victory, and all those years in between, fans continue to come to the games. Fans continue to buy tickets. So it's just one of those things. You know, we ride and die with sports. You know, pretty much. So it's just one of those things that we have to feel a part of it. You know, when those teams do good, we feel we feel vindicated in a way just for you know having this lifelong like just relationship with this club so i don't know when the bulls will ever <laughs> get back to that point but you know i'm pretty sure having a chance to cover them but i'm pretty sure if they once they do get back to that uh to the echelon in sports and they win something you know is going to be a very gratifying moment for me yo i'm sure you and all the people around the world wearing Absolutely. that hat man like there, there's a hundred percent something about it right it's, it's just it is so interesting and as i said i'm a mets fan so yeah i live and die 
every oh, year by this shit yeah. team that hates me. Right? <laughs> like they hate me. They do everything to put me in the ground, and every year I'm just like, nope. I love you more than my wife. I love you more than my family. Right? Like, it, you know, it's a little facetious, but at the same time, like the Mets are, you know, they just lost recently. I haven't been very happy. <laughs> like, I, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it, and I don't want that to change, honestly, because that's why we're human. We want to feel things, right? Absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully, man, it'll be worth it when they do win that one time. So we'll see what happens. But not enough about me. No one cares about me. You're here. <laughs> we're here talking to Chris Kaysen, and I'm excited to learn. So you grew up a Bulls fan, and at least on LinkedIn, one of your first jobs I could find was that you actually covered the Bulls. Now, that seems like an exception to the rule, right? Not everyone who I, – I don't know every Mets fan that wanted to become a sports writer immediately went out and started covering the Mets. So I'm really curious, like, especially in a, a very competitive and a very high-demand, high-supply field like sports writing, right? pretty much anyone in that has a mom's basement is putting something on the Internet these days. Yeah. How, do you, how does that opportunity come about, and how are you able to go and seize it? Oh, well, it, it wasn't easy. You know, my background is very non-traditional. So uh, my writing career can be traced back to just the connections I made in college. I'm going to date myself just a little bit, but I'll try to condense this story as much as possible. So when Facebook first started out, you know, as opposed to reaching out to former classmates that I went to grammar school and high school with, I had grew up reading Slam Magazine, Soul Collector, um, Inside Stuff Magazine, all of these different publications. And I already knew I kind of had an interest in sports writing. I didn't know how to get into it, what I would do, but I knew the people who could get me close to that were the actual people who I grew up reading. So Scoop Jackson, I grew up reading Nick DePaula, uh, Anthony Gilbert. I mean, me and Nick DePaula are kind of in the same age range. So, but I was still uh, reading his work. So I started adding them on Facebook, like just out of the blue. And, you know, every once in a while I would hit them up, pick their brains and things like that. And just from that connection uh, through Anthony Gilbert, he started working with a company called MVN, Most Valuable uh, Sports Network. And essentially they were just like a company started in Philly as a blog. They pretty much had um, beats for all of these different writers. There was like no credentialing at all. You were essentially, it was pretty much just blogging. It was like the first iteration of blogging. So I will watch um, Anthony Gilbert introduce me to John Burkett over there. John Burkett say, all right, you know, you can cover the bull. So watch games, write recaps, give my opinion on things. Um, and in about 2008 or a little bit before that, theexaminer.com uh, started up and they reached out to me because they had been uh, reading some of my work at MVN. I didn't think anybody read any of the stuff I did. I would just write it, post it, post it to Facebook. Um, I don't even think Twitter was around back then. So just posting it on Facebook, starting conversations with people, um, comment people that would comment, I would interact with them in the comment section. So the examiner came along and they wanted me to do the same thing for their site. And I was like, you know what? I really can't just jump ship like that. You know, they gave me my writing opportunity over here. I was like, hey, the only way I would leave is if you guys fight, you know, for credentialing for me. You know, I had been independently fighting the league and the Chicago Bulls to be credentialed. Um, I'm pretty sure they got tired of me because it was like every other month I was writing the Bulls. I was writing the NBA. It's like, hey, can I just cover, you know, just a practice. Just give me practice and, you know, I'll figure it out from there. And they would always turn me down, rightfully, because, you know, it's just a small blog that not too many people were aware of. But the examiner fought, fought for me. And uh, my first credentialed event was the 2008 NBA Draft Combine. So uh, that would be my rookie classes, Steph Curry, Blake Griffin, DeMar DeRozan, James Harden, Taj Gibson, the guys in that draft. And from that, I did a good job with that covering that and then you know the Bulls seeing that I had been credentialed they gave me access to some preseason games and you know once I got in there it was pretty much just show and prove show that I was serious show that I wasn't you know in there trying to take up space or not doing work so I got in there and pretty much started covering you know 
just started covering the team on a part-time basis. So um, that path is so untraditional. So even when people reach out to me like, hey, how did you do it? Usually back then you had to go from high school, college to maybe sports, or you had to have some type of internship. I had none of that like at all. I essentially went from blogging to, all right, now you're in the NBA locker rooms. Now it's about covering the team. Now it's about trying to figure out, you know, how my content can deviate eyes from the Chicago Tribunes, the Chicago Sun-Times, the ESPNs, the Comcast. Uh, and that was the next challenge after that. So my path was very, very different. But once it, it, it was essentially like how I've kind of lived my life. I got in there by hustling, you know, once I got in there, it was just about creating another hustle um, in terms of reaching out to all of these publications I grew up reading um, and just contributing, you know, I'm in NBA locker room. So you have access to, you know, all of these unique personalities. There's different stories to tell outside of what those guys do for a living. So that's pretty much my writing career in a nutshell. I love it, man. And yeah, yeah. that is very unique. Uh, and I think it's, it's important for people to understand it's, not all paths are linear, right? Like they're, no, not if, at all. If, and the one thing, another thing about this industry that I do bring up occasionally is you, you have to be doing something before someone's going to hire you to do it. Right. I don't expect, like I, I would not have expect, you know, to be like, Oh, I want to be a podcaster. Someone hired me to do it. They're going to be like, well, how many times have you done it up? Ep- like how many episodes have you done? Zero. Yeah. Well, why would we hire you? And, and in your case, right. It was, it was blogging and it was reaching out and it was, Hey, how do you do this? So I, I'm curious, was this, was this a full-time gig or, or do, were you working on the side or was this your side work? Like, how are you able to, it didn't sound like this was the highest paying job. I don't need to know your dollar no, numbers, but all. like, like how, like how, how, how are you able to, you know, continue to live your life? Yeah. So the, when I started with the examiner, that was in 2008, there was a period where um, I was working a full-time job still because the examiner had a pay-per-view pay type of model. So um, as long as I had a certain viewership number, then you get paid, you know, whatever. And it wasn't much at all. It's probably, you know, I probably only hit that viewership model. Like I hit it consistently, but it was probably good for like a couple of hundred bucks, you know, out the month. So enough to supplement my account. I was going to work full time and I think I was finishing up school full time at the time. So I I look back now at that moment and realize like, yo, how did I do that? I'm, you know, you got 15, 16 credit hours in school. You're going to work for nine hours out the day and then you're still trying to balance your schedule to still make it out to Northbrook, which is about 45, 50 minutes away from the city to cover a practice or, you know, try to work your schedule out in a way to where you can go to evening games um, and get work done. So it was just a grind. Um, There definitely, I definitely wasn't making a living off of the things that I was doing, but, you know, I loved it, you know, being around an organization that I grew up, you know, watching and, you know, getting to talk to some of the players I grew up watching. And now you have this, you know, I'm coming in at the time where, you know, Joaquin Noah, Kirk Hyrus is there, Derek Rose, it's his second year. There's this new, this new iteration of the Bulls who are forming their own identity. I'm coming in right at that time. And I'm a part of helping, you know, shape that narrative of what those guys were about. So um, I never looked at me not getting paid what, everybody else was getting paid um, as like a downfall because it was like a master class. Every time I got to step inside the United Center, I'm getting to watch how a Sam Smith is working. I'm getting to watch how a Casey Johnson, who's been there, you know, forever is working. Nick Friedel, Agre Sam, uh, Lacey J. Banks, guys that I grew up reading, I'm getting a chance to like watch them now. And, you know, I took that as this is my internship, you know, but I'm learning on the fly. And, you know, I have pretty much a front seat to the best teachers, you know, imaginable guys that have been in a in the league and writing for, you know, a lifetime. And I'm getting a chance to watch them, talk to them, learn from them. So I looked at that as my payment as opposed to, you know, just a dollar amount. 
Yeah, that seems like it's much more valuable than you know the the couple hundred dollars. I'm sure, I'm sure the travel costs alone uh, would uh, would kind of just take no. up the couple hundred dollars at that point. So in Easily. that case, like I think it's really important. Oh yeah, yeah, dude, I love it. And I think it, again, just important for people to understand. Like you're gonna have to sacrifice. Like the like how you did 15 or 16 credit hours and worked a full time job by itself. That's an insane amount of work. Then throw in, yeah. oh yeah, and now I'm also covering a professional basketball team. One of the most famous professional basketball teams, pretty much in the yeah. entire world, I'd say. Um, yeah, I'm sure a lot. It's it's you know you you you're, you can't really mail in those you know pieces of content that you were doing. You you have to put in that effort, and as you said, you have to learn from some of those around you. You made a comment a little earlier, um, how to divert eyes, right? You needed you got paid by people viewing your content. How did yeah. you? How how were you learning from all these incredible um, you know writers and and you know people in in the press box and people that you looked up to? How were you able to learn from them, and also make sure you were putting your own twist on things to be able to essentially say, "Hey, I would love to learn something from you, but I also need a couple of those eyeballs that are watching yours." So I'm gonna have to, you know, you know, make it your own because I actually need to get paid because you know gas is expensive. <laughs> like, how are you able to kind of finesse that situation? <laughs> Well, I don't think it, I never looked at it as a finesse. I always approached each person that, you know, I wanted to learn something from as, you know, pretty much I'm just trying to be good, you know, at this, be great. Like, I respect what you do and, you know, watch you work like, hey, you know, how should I handle this or how should I, you know, handle this? And, you know, the sports world, even when you go into you know, be writing. It's competitive because, you know, you may have working relationships, you know, amongst those guys, but this is a competitive industry. You know, if this if this beat writer breaks a story and this beat writer doesn't, I'm pretty sure the editor is emailing like, yo, how's he getting all of this stuff at? You know, you've been there longer and things like that. So I just always, whether I'm going to Sam Smith or Casey Johnson, you know, I'll ask them certain things about, you know, hey, how would you approach a guy who, you know, has had a bad shooting game and you're trying to pull something out of him to convey that to your readers on why he's struggling, what is he going through? And uh, another thing that helped me is um, I think I came along at a time where those guys were all in my like age range. So I kind of knew how to, I knew how to talk to Derek Rose because I'm a kid from Chicago. He's a kid from Chicago. So I knew how to talk to him. Um, same thing with guys like Joe King, Luau Ding. You know, you observe them and then you kind of figure out like, all right, well, this is how I approach him. This is what he enjoys doing off the court. So, you know, I was always a sponge. You know, I would get to the arena right when the media gates would open at 3.30. So I'm there when the lights are off, essentially, you know, on the court. You know, the Benny the Bull is practicing at that time. The Lovell Bulls are practicing that thing. And you're starting to get a sense of, who comes in first to, you know, get their work, to get their shots up, you know, who's coming in last, like, and just from that time of sitting on the bench, just watching all of this stuff unfold on game days, you start striking up relationships with the assistant coaches, all the people who put in the work behind the scenes that are helping this player break out of a slump, guys who are helping this players get better. And that helped me a lot because now I had little tidbits that I can share, like, after a game recap, like, you know, hey, you know, this is how player X broke out of a shooting slump. You know, he's been staying after games and working with, you know, an Adrian Griffin or something like that. So um, I never, I think those guys, I was, it was such, the examiner.com was such a small and new publication that, those guys probably didn't view me as a threat and I didn't want them to view me as a threat. I just wanted to find my niche, find what I was good at, find something that guys were willing to talk to me about that nobody else was talking to them about and then just go from there. So I just approached it at a from a different angle than just, uh, you know, talking to them about their job all the time. My thing was always talking to them about the little small human interest angles of things and you know, then, you know, building stories off of that, because when you look at beat writing as a whole, you're essentially kind of everybody's writing the same thing. You can have like seven to eight guys assigned to beat, and literally you're talking to the same guys, you're getting the same quote, 
you know, you may ask a different question or something like that, but you're essentially writing almost the same story day by day. But what's going to separate you from those others? You know, do you add humor into it? You know, do you, you know, put something else in there that these other guys aren't that keep readers, you know, attached to what you have to say? Yeah, and I think that's a great way of looking at it, right? The opportunity to just be able to put your own personal spin on it. And I'm always curious. Uh, I've never actually asked a beat writer this before. I've had multiple on the show. never got to ask anybody this. You're going to have to say mean or bad things about someone, right? Like if someone has a bad night or makes a terrible foul or, or you know makes a boneheaded play, like you can only beat around the bush so much without saying it. And then the next day you're expected to go back in there and, you know, continue that relationship with that person and athletes are humans right like they're people yeah. no one likes hearing that yeah this person you know, chris called me an idiot right like obviously you're not being a little <laughs> facetious about it but like how, how are you able to continue those relationships and make sure that they stayed strong while also making sure that you were doing your job and, and you know being you know saying what needed to be said to the people that read your stories yeah um that's the that's kind of like i think every b writer struggles with that balance, but I think most players are mature enough to know that as long as you're not disrespecting them, you know, as a person, or, you know, like you said, if you're referring to them as a name or something like that, I think most players know that, hey, this is your job. You have to report on that. You have to ask certain tough questions about it. And then it's all up to the player on how they want to answer it. I had an issue, um, well, an incident, um, with a player once and, you know, I wrote something kind of critiquing like a, a certain pairing um, of players that I didn't think would work out. And, you know, the player kind of was giving me the cold shoulder, like I would say probably for like two weeks. And with me just working home games, sometimes going on the road to, you know, like a Milwaukee or Indianapolis or Cleveland, like it becomes noticeable. It's like, yo, what did I do to this? What did, did I say something? And, you know, I finally pulled the player to the side, like after a media scrum and asked, like, hey, are we, you know, we good? Did I say something? And he mentioned something that I had written, like, maybe three weeks, you know, um, ago. And I didn't, at that time, I was still naive to think players didn't care what was being written, especially when it comes to game recaps. But the ones that care and actually love what they're doing, they read everything. So, you know, it was pretty much like, a, um, you know, just setting the mm -hmm. table and like, hey, you know, you could have come, come to me and I could have broke that down for you better as opposed to you kind of writing about it as if you know the ins and out of it. And I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. You know, next time it was a learning experience for me. Yeah. Um, that's always the interesting dynamic in these locker rooms now because these guys are there's so many eyes on them at all times and now with social media so much of their life is you know out in public so i think their sanctuary is what they do and you know when you have somebody that may critique something you did especially when it's bad it's a long season they kind of feel you know they're sensitive they're humans like you just said so they're going to have a problems with it but i think what athletes can do is you know just have a conversation like if you didn't like something or you felt you could add it better context to it hey pull that writer to the side and you know hash it out but at the end of the day you know the b reporter is just there to do a job like if he's not attacking a person's character or you know nobody's getting called out their name or their professionalism isn't being criticized if not warranted then it shouldn't be an issue and, th and that makes sense. Yeah, as you said, most most athletes are mature human beings, right? Like, yeah, there's a bunch of 19-year-old kids, especially in the NBA, right? But most athletes, oh, yeah. and if all beat writers are writing the same thing, I mean, that's just going to be a very, especially on bad teams, that's just going to be a long season. That's no no fun for anybody. So, yeah, there's two sides to the, you know, there's two sides to that relationship and understanding that, I think, as long as athletes get that and as long as, as you said, you use it as a learning experience, and I'm sure your pieces then got better because you realized, hey, wait, rather than just assuming – I should go to this guy and just be like, hey, this is what I'm seeing. You tell me if this is right, if this is wrong, or if you have another opinion on it. And then that 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 adds even more context. That adds even more flavor to your content than would have than you just being like, I just don't think this will work, right? And then going into your, your justification of it. So I think that's pretty cool. And yeah, it's a good learning experience for everybody. So I think that's that's pretty important. And, and we keep talking about the human aspect of this, which I think is really important. And especially in the NBA, you see it more, I would say, 
at least I do as Joe Public, see it more than anywhere else. Our NBA stars are the most, I guess, the, they're the biggest stars, right? Like outside mm-hmm. of like Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes in the NFL. Yeah, there's, you know, Lamar Jackson, Josh, outside of quarterbacks, I guess, is a good way to say yeah. it in the NFL. And baseball's terrible at marketing their stars. And, you know, I love Very hockey, true. but it's the smallest of the big four, let's be honest. It's basketball and stars go hand in hand. I don't care. I don't have a team to root for. I just root for LeBron, right? Like, not anymore because I'm kind of over his shit. But, like, yeah, like I root for LeBron. I root for Steph Curry. Like, I root for the stars. Like, I don't care what team they're on. I'm rooting for them. And and you brought yeah. up a piece point before with your writing that you want to add in that human element, that human aspect. And now with what you're doing, right, we can kind of transition from what you were doing with the Bulls to kind of what you're doing now. And it's a bunch of different things. But I've read some of your pieces. Uh, obviously, you just had one recently with uh, John Cena. I saw some stuff you had with Trey Young. You have a bunch of different stuff out oh, there yeah. with a lot of different athletes. I'm curious, how did you make that transition from, you know, being a beat writer to saying, I kind of want to go into more, I guess, I, I don't want to, you know, put words in your mouth, but more long form, more like player focused content and, and star focused content, interview type content. How do you decide to make that transition and, and how do you even go about it? Yeah. So like, um, I think I mentioned this before. I grew up reading slam magazines. I can't count the number of times in you know, grammar school and high school that I got in trouble for, you know, reading, you know, Slam magazine, um, you know, going to high school, I had a long commute, you know, I would read the Chicago Sun-Times, the sports section, uh, but Slam magazine was it for me. It was, it's, to me, it's still whole, whenever I get an assignment in Slam magazine, I pretty much take it with the utmost seriousness just because of how much that publication meant to me, uh, specifically, the work of, you know, Russ Bankston and, um, you know, Scoop Jackson, like those guys told stories in a way that, you know, you don't get from just reading, you know, the clippings from the paper. So um, I always wanted to do that. And I knew, you know, it sounds like they were cool with the athlete. They weren't just writing about what they were doing, but, you know, they were spending two weeks at a time with them. Uh, that That's obviously not the case now with how access is you know, kind of divvied up. But um, at some point during the beat writing thing, you know, you, I think it was around the, um, I always attribute this to Derrick Rose. It was when he was going through, I believe the meniscus um, injury, like right after the torn ACL. He was in the locker room one day, I think we're interview. I can't remember who we were interviewing, but he like asked the question out loud. He's like, do you guys write the same thing? <laughs> like every day? I was like, you know what? Yeah, we kind of, yeah, kind of do. And you, you could just see the way the media landscape was changing, how access was being divvied up. Like there's only so many times a guy wants to talk about, you got to think about these guys are experts at what they're doing. They're professionals. So trying to break like terminologies and different things down and put it in a way to, 20 to 30 people after a game, after a loss is something they don't want to do, but it's a requirement of the job. So I wanted to start talking to guys about what they were interested in, you know, what makes them tick, you know, what goes into, you know, what we all see, you know, when the lights come on. So like I said, I started reaching out to, you know, publications about, hey, you know, I'm in, I'm in this locker room, you know, I can start talking to, you know, player X about, you know, his signature line, his signature footwear line. So I started with Soul Collector uh, doing the series um, and then started doing work with Complex, Nice Kicks, now GQ. So um, and then the crazy part is uh, when I first got in the door, I spoke with everybody. It could be the guy sweeping them up in the floor. It could be the security outside of, you know, the locker room. Like I talked to everybody just because, you know, everybody there is important because they're all there to pretty much help the show go on in some capacity. So everybody in that building is important. Those people sweeping up this, um, sweeping up the, the stadium after the game is over, the people breaking down, uh, the stadium seating, you know, to put the ice up there for the Blackhawks, everybody's important. So I never like put my head down or held my nose up too high when walking past people. But going back to your question about how did I get started, just reaching out to publications, you know, I was a nerd in that I would still go to Barnes and Noble, all of these magazines that I enjoy reading, boom, crack the magazine open, 
go right to the mass head. Who's the who's the executive editor? Who's the deputy editor? Okay, man, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to Facebook now, Twitter, and like you know, I'm gonna reach out to them and see if you know there could be some synergy there. So that's what I did. Uh, pretty much just started reaching out to editors, say, hey, this is what I could do. This is what I could have access to. You know, let's see if we can find a way to make it work. And you know, in a nutshell, and that's kind of how it's you know worked for me. I mean, and now when you look at how think there's so much accessibility to things now to where with kids you can reach out to you know an exec at a team and like hey can i pick your brain for five minutes you know you can do that through linkedin you can do that still through facebook there's so many avenues now for people to reach out to you know whoever and get you know eight ten minutes of their time that you know it's crazy i wish i had that you know when i was coming around i don't know if it would have made me feel like things should be easier it kind of takes away from people you know hustling and doing the work but there's so much there's so many avenues now for like students now to reach out to you know these people in sports and start picking their brain just to see like hey you know i have an interest in this but you know, you actually do this and have been doing it for 10 years. Can I hear about your experience? And that can kind of, that will make me realize like, hey, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want to shift focus to, you know, some over here. Yeah, and I, I, I tell, when I go and speak with college students, I always tell them like, if you're not reaching out to a minimum of one person on LinkedIn a day, you're not doing it right. Like, you, you, you know, Absolutely. right. You, you did the hustle aspect of it, right. Where you're going to Barnes and Noble, you're writing down all these people's names and finding them on the internet. And yeah, it's so much easier now. So essentially you have a more opportunity to hustle now. So if you really want to, Absolutely. there's still so much out there for students, for, for young professionals to go and be able to do. And, and personally for me, I just like talking to people, as you can say, and as you said, you know, Hey, I reached out for a couple minutes of your time so far. I got about 30 of it. So I do appreciate that, Chris, a couple more coming. Yeah, but, no uh, problem. Really do appreciate that. And, and I think it's just important for people to understand and going back to a point that you made before, right. And, and realizing in sports and we brought it up in the beginning, everybody's got a story. I want to hear the story of the guy that swept up the confetti after the uh, after the Super Bowl, after the, after the <laughs> NBA Finals. That guy has a story, right? The guy that's been sweeping up that floor for 40 friggin' years, and he's been doing it every single night after the game, and he goes home to his wife, and he talks about how much he loves his job, and then one time he finally gets to sweep up that confetti, right? You're telling me that guy doesn't have such an unbelievable connection with the, 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 the team that he's been working for and the players that he's been seeing in and out and the executives that keep coming through the door and they leave and then you get new ones, right? But this guy's still here. I, write that story, Chris, because that actually sounds awesome. So, you know, hey, take that one for what it is. But I'm sure that's an yeah, awesome absolutely. story because everyone in sports, whether you're the highest of the high, the lowest of the low on the totem pole, you got a cool story. I can guarantee it, which I think um, that's why we love this thing, man. That's why we love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Again, appreciate you coming on. I'll keep going. I'm sorry. If you have a thought, rock with it. No. And another thing I tell kids is it's, it's one thing to be a fan of sports, but I tell kids now, especially with social media, yo, watch, you know, watch what you say about teams, players, you know, on social media, because that could, you know, your, your future boss could be potentially like watching what you say on there. So if, it's one thing to say, oh, he's a bum, but when you go on to these personal attacks and yeah, you're yeah. horribly criticizing the team and the organization, like, yo, these, like, we're at, a, we're at a time in society where everything you say really can be used against you. So you may have tweets from six, seven years ago that may, you know, you're a different person, obviously, at that time. But if you're saying some pretty disparaging things about, you know, a player about a team or an organization, your future boss could be looking at that. So, you know, it's so important that I think these kids now recognize like social media is nothing but, you know, a running resume, you know, it's a look into, you know, who you are, I mean, and who you're trying to portray yourself to be. So, you know, if you're coming across as anything that you wouldn't want to project yourself to, you know, a future boss, you probably, you know, save that for, you know, your close friends or whatever. You don't want to be putting that out into the world because like I said, your future boss, you know, will definitely see that. 
Yeah, not not a good idea. Go back, delete everything. I tried to delete every single thing that I ever put on Facebook because <laughs> whatever I did when I was 15, like that, I'm not that person anymore. Whatever I did, I was 18 or 19 or 20, 21. I'm not that person anymore. So, you know what? I didn't read. I read some of it. it wasn't great, so I just deleted it. Like right, and it was just stupid <laughs> stuff that kids do. And like, I'm not gonna say it was like the smartest thing in the world. Obviously, it wasn't. Um, and unfortunately, right, your parents are right again. Don't put stuff on the internet that you don't want people to see, right? And that's coming to fruition. Absolutely. We see it constantly with athletes. We see it constantly with just you know executives that don't really know how the internet works, right? We see it all the time. So yeah, just go back, delete all of it. Just 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 Absolutely. delete all of it. None of it means anything. It never really did mean anything. So just delete all of it. It's probably for the best. Um, and I think that's Absolutely. pretty important. So I guess I guess I'm curious, like when. How, when, at what point do you get comfortable enough to say, okay, well, all right, I graduated from school. I don't really want to do this nine to five anymore. I just want to be a beat writer. I just want to write these stories with these athletes. Like how, 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 like at, at what point are you able to finally say, like, I think I'll be okay if I just continue to get work this way, especially because this is what I love to do. And this is what I want to do anyway. Yeah, I don't think, you know, as a freelancer, as a guy who, you know, does a lot of contract work, you never really, you know, get to feeling of being comfortable at all. You know, you always kind of, um, you're always chasing the next story. You're trying to see, you know, what's next. And that's where the excitement for me comes from. You know, a story may come out by the time a lot of people see stuff that I've written. I'm already four or five stories past that. I might have done that a month ago and it's just releasing, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, a month later, um, just if it's an announcement about something, if it's something with an embargo. So I think just for me, like the, the beauty is just in like that journey of the next story. So while I, I want to say I get comfortable, you know, I've always been in love with the process of the challenge of the next story, you know, like with GQ, um, the real life diet series, you know, it can kind of seem like it's pretty um, monotonous in terms of the subject. Cause you're talking to, to athletes and entertainers and celebrities about their diet training. But the beauty is what makes you tick, not as opposed to, like what makes athletes ticks in general? What what do you eat? How do you train? What time are you waking up? Like what's specific to you? And getting that insight, I think, gives uh, fans and readers just you know a different insight into these guys because, like I said, we all see these guys you know when they're at their best and after all of these hours and days of preparation, you know, if it's a football player, you know, there's six days that goes into what you see on Sunday. There's this whole recovery on Monday and Tuesday. There's practice on a Wednesday. Thursday, there's film. Friday, you know, practice. Saturday, there's more prep work. And then there's the game on Sunday. Same thing with the NBA. It's an 82-game season. Same thing with the NHL. We only see these guys when, you know, it's time to go to work. We don't see all of these things that go into – the 50 point nights, you know, the three, the four or five touchdown um, throws performance. So, you know, you just have to search for the details that nobody else is conveying. And it's a challenge, but it's also what keeps me going and trying to pull these little tidbits out from guys just to relay that to readers, because it just gives you insight to say, hey, this guy is, you know, obviously genetically and athletically gifted, but he doesn't skip the details. This is what he's doing, you know, to go out there and, you know, put on the best performances. He cares that much to do this, to avoid eating this, you know, to be at his best, you know, on game night. I think so many people in like the public, we don't, you're hundred percent right. We don't realize all the work that goes into it. Oh, this guy's naturally talented. Okay. Yeah. He's naturally talented, but yeah, you know how many hours of work he put in, to make sure that he's Countless. maximizing his talent, right? Like it, and there's so many people. Oh, he's lucky. Oh, she's lucky to have this or that. It's like, or did they, you know, wake up at five in the morning and do everything that they needed to do in the day before you even got out of bed, right? And like, hey, that's you know, that's just the people, that's the public, and it's very easy to kind of fall into that trap. So that's always something that I hate doing is when you know if someone, one of my friends, is like, oh, they're so lucky. I can't believe they got to do that or this, that, and the other things. So like, 
Well, they probably deserved it, right? In very few situations did that person or all of these people, like how many of them actually just got kind of randomly pulled out of a hat? And I was like, okay, you're going to be the best. You don't have to put any work into it. Even the best put the most work in, right? You hear about LeBron James, yep. what he does to his body, right? Like all of these things, they're putting in so much unbelievable work. And it's, it's cool to see and cool to hear that you're able to go in and figure that out and give people that behind the scenes because I think people love the behind the scenes. Right. The yeah. old saying is no one wants to know how the sausage was made. But in reality, I think especially now with like the athlete focus and, and the star driven just content, like people want to know how the sausage was made. They want to know where, where the pig grew up and what the pig was eating right before the sausage mm-hmm. was even made. So, like, I think that stuff is just so interesting and it really lends you to be able to actually understand who these people are a little bit more. And really, you know, obviously, I'm never going to meet LeBron James. Hey, maybe I do one day. That'd be cool. But at least I know kind of a little bit more about him through, you know, writing and, and podcasts and video content and everything that's kind of going on that it makes it just, I don't know, there's more of a connection. I can find more pieces to connect myself to LeBron because in reality, there are very few pieces of anything that could connect me with LeBron, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I've been, um, I don't take my career for granted because, you know, when you say things like that, you know, I've had the opportunity to go up to LeBron, pull him to the side, like, Hey, you know, can you tell me, you know, what you you've played against Tom Thibodeau's defense for this many years? Like, how do you try without giving you know away your secrets? What is what's great about his defense, and what is it forces you to do? And you know, Kobe Bryant, you know, is the same way. You know, guy rested, so you know, being able to pull these guys to the side and just get that little bit of detail, it makes you under. It kind of shows you and separates. The greats, the guys who care about what's going to be said about their name and legacy 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, after they're done playing. And the guys who are just there because, hey, I'm talented. This is a this is a great living. You know, I'm able to provide for my family. You know, I'm cool. You know, I'm just trying to make it to the next check. Um, so just kind of bridging the gaps and filling in all of these little details is something that I enjoy doing because access is so limited with guys now. And essentially really outside of beat reporting, I don't think athletes too much need media as you know, in years past because their, their audience really is their social media. Now you can go live at any time and, you know, pull in hundreds of thousands of viewers to make an announcement about something, to show something that you're doing. And, you know, you don't have to consult with a publication or something um, like that at all. So just being able to be in a position to speak with these guys and be up close to them and figure out what makes them tick, you know, is, you know, a privilege. And it's one I really don't take, you know, for granted at all. I'm glad that you don't, man, because there's a lot of people listening and a lot of people out there that would probably pay to have your job, right? You get paid to do it, but I'm sure a lot of people would pay for that job, which is so cool. So again, kudos and congratulations. You do some awesome shit, man. You're going to keep doing it. And I'm grateful that you gave me a little bit of your time today. I mean, the last thing I want to talk to you about, I know you work with athletes in another sense too, right? You're an athlete marketing specialist. Sounds pretty fancy. I mean, maybe that's the writer in you, right? But I guess I'm just kind (laughs) of curious, like what exactly is an athlete marketing specialist? What are you doing? Who are you helping? How are you helping them? Just give me some generalities about that thing. Yeah, essentially, so I'm not working with any specific athletes at the moment. Uh, COVID kind of slowed that business down a little bit. But um, essentially, you know, I created my own company, Baseline Media. Uh, It's pretty much just my company of um, pretty much when I submitted an invoice or something, I would get paid, you know, through my company. But um, as far as the media work goes with the marketing, there's, say, let's say, I don't want to name names or disrespect anybody's sports agency, but say you have an agency, a big a, a big sports agency, you have player Let's say X it's and, three letters, three letter, a three letter agency. Is that, is that okay to say? Well, let's say four. Let's say four. Not four. Three, okay. You know, perfect. How perfect. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So let's say they have player X and Y on their, you know, on their roster. They're obviously the top names in their uh, individual sport. Well, those players, players A, B, C, D, they're kind of going to fall to the wayside of that because they're either in tier two or tier three. So all the resources are still going to player X, X and uh, Y. So 
who's out there searching for opportunities for player A, B, and C. So I just saw an opportunity to get in there and start working with individual guys who may fall to that, you know, tier two, tier three type and, you know, get out there and, hey, what 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 are your interests? What type of, what do you want to be known for? What audience do you want to get in front of? And work with those guys, work with writers who I've built relationships with and pretty much just merge those together just to make it a win-win for, it's a win for all parties involved. It's a win for the writer, it's a win for the athlete, you know, it's a win for the publication. So that's pretty much baseline media in a nutshell. I mean, that, I think that's it's very smart thing to do, right? You, you've been networking this whole time. We didn't really talk about networking too much explicitly, but you've been kind of implicit with talking about how you've been always going up to people, always talking to them, always trying to pick someone's brain. And I think it's important, right? You've been able to meet so many people over the years that you're able to start connecting those dots. And people like connectors, yeah. man. Connectors are extremely important and very necessary in many places, right? The athlete's happy. Now the writer has a story. Now the brand, right? You didn't even mention the brand. I'm sure there's a brand potentially attached to it in some way, yeah. shape, or form, whether it's the athlete's just general brand or a brand that they're working with or the publication is working with, right? And the publication itself too. So just by giving, you know, the just kind of stoking that flame a little bit, everybody's happy, everybody gets paid nobody's angry in that situation. And I think that's a really smart way of going about it because, yeah, I, I, I had a very similar idea when I started my business uh, when I worked with Olympic athletes and did pretty much the same exact thing where no one was giving them any love. They were getting nothing, so why not try and figure out ways to help them because they're still people. They still have incredible stories, and people still are going to be able to attach themselves to these athletes in some way, shape, or form. So, no, man, I think that's, that's awesome. Sorry, COVID slid it down a little bit. Hopefully, uh, now that we're, I don't know, someone said it's over, so why not? Hey, hopefully it gets picked <laughs> up again a little bit, and uh, you can uh, you can figure that out again, man. But this is, uh, Chris, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you. And, like, going back to networking, like you say, never be scared to, I think when I've seen interns get into the locker room and I know it could be an intimidating thing, or once you're around all of these professionals, it could be intimidating if you're an 18, 19, 20 year old kid and you don't want to step on anybody's toes, but man, don't ever be scared to pull somebody aside respectfully or come up to somebody and just like, hey, you know, I'm such and such. I think with social media and just, all of these digital platforms that's kind of taken away like just people feeling comfortable with like having a face-to-face conversation you know with people or talking to somebody you know face-to-face now never be scared to pull somebody to the side ask them for three minutes of their time and you know it's up to that person to say yes or no but you'll find out that a lot of people in sports business you know even with how competitive it is they're willing to give you you know that three to five minutes of their time or 48 in my case. So I do appreciate it again, man. <laughs> I think it's important, dude. Like I, I'm a huge networker. Um, I, I tell everybody how important it is, as I said, you know, when I go speak to colleges, if you're not reaching out to one person a day on LinkedIn, uh, there's no way you don't have five minutes. Like, I don't care how busy your schedule is. Wake up five minutes earlier. There. I don't care what time Absolutely. you wake up. You can wake up five minutes earlier. You're waking up at three. What's the difference between two, three and 255? Like, get out of here. So you can find mm-hmm. five minutes somewhere in your day uh, to be able to reach out. Now, is that on LinkedIn? Is it on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook? Like, old old school like you did, Chris? I think that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, and, and I think that's important, right? And you have to do that. You have to reach out. You have to find people where they are and just ask them questions. Most people are nice, like right? Like most yeah, people absolutely. are willing to give you their time. I, I saw some of the stuff you did. I said, hey, man, we'd love to have you on the show. I think you do some cool stuff. I think you have some cool stories you'd love to share. And you were like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. This is awesome. So, um, you know, appreciate you again and appreciate everyone that I've been able to reach out to. And is that nice? And, yeah, just do more of it. Like what's the worst that could happen? Absolutely, Nothing. yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'll give another another small story. So, like I said, I grew up idolizing the work of Scoop Jackson um, and through Anthony Gilbert, who actually knew Scoop Jackson. Scoop Jackson is now with ESPN, but he gave me, I didn't know Scoop lived in Chicago, you know, growing up. So I was like, wow, this guy's a Chicago resident. I wrote Scoop a handwritten letter to his house. Scoop actually returned, like wrote back to me. And I was just like, what the hell? I was like, Scoop Jackson wrote back to me in a letter. So like I said, this dates myself. But I met Scoop at a, finally in person at a Chicago Bulls-Washington Wizards game. And I was so nervous because this is the guy who I changed what sports writing was, what I viewed it as. I was like, I was so scared to meet him. And, yo, as soon as he met me, 
pulled me in, gave me a big hug. And like, from that point, I can call Scoop Jackson now on my phone, uh, ask him how the family is doing. And, you know, just to see how far I've come and growing up reading this man's work and now I can text him, now I can call him, still pick his brain. It's crazy. But that all came from networking. That all came from not being scared to write this guy a, a letter who had no idea who I was. He, I'm just a kid from Chicago and I'm writing a letter and sending it to his house. He didn't know, <laughs> didn't, didn't know who I was, didn't know how I got his address, but the fact that he responded and we met, I think of like a year or two later and how he embraced me and welcomed me in to his home, to his family. Like it's, like I said, that all came from networking and not being afraid to, you know, put myself out there. And like I said, he's, I'm indebted to him, like always, just because, you know, if it's not for him, then I may still do sports writing, but I don't know if I would have felt the confidence that, you know, I could put my voice to it, you know, without, you know, reading his words, Russ Bankston words, and everything that everybody over at Slam was doing. That is beautiful, man. That is awesome. Uh, what a great way to end it, because I think that's such an important story for people to understand, so I don't need to comment too much on that. But, uh, Chris, this has been absolutely fantastic. Where can we find some of your writing? Where can we follow you on social media? Give us all the links. Give us all the handles. Definitely. Well, everything um, that I post goes on to my Twitter, uh, Twitter, C4Dunk. I'm on Instagram. I'll post some stuff on there, too, but not too much you know i try to you know decompress from social media as much as possible but yeah definitely twitter c4 dunk you know you can find all my stuff there i love it man well i'll put that in the show notes for everyone and yeah if you spend too much time on twitter you don't you shouldn't be on social media for your mental well-being you know it's the worst place on planet a lot of good (laughs) things happen there but mostly it's just just terrible i hate it but I do it too, man. I do it too. But no, man, Chris, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for giving me some of your time. Uh, thank everybody out there out there listening for giving me theirs. Time is the only thing we don't get more of. So I really, really do appreciate you giving me a little bit of it. But other than that, man, thank you very much, and thanks to everyone listening. Bye, everybody. No problem. Thank you.